Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Today is Friday, January 9th, 2009, and joining us today is Mr. Richard D. Branson, RRT-FCCM. Mr. Branson is an associate professor of surgery in the Division of Trauma and Critical Care at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center in Ohio. Mr. Branson is going to be giving uh, two talks at the upcoming uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine's Critical Care Congress in Nashville, Tennessee, which is from January 31st to February 4th. And the title of his two talks are The Modes of Mechanical Ventilation and Mechanical Ventilation Modes, How and When. And the focus of his talk there is going to be these quote-unquote new or advanced modes of mechanical ventilation. And I've been following his work in literature for quite some time, and I'm very excited that he could be with us today. Thank you so much, Mr. Branson, for spending some time with us. Thank you. This is my first podcast focusing on respiratory therapy and ventilator modes um, and our first respiratory therapy podcast. So I thought we'd start out sort of informally letting you talk about how you ended up doing what you're doing, uh, being part of such an academically productive uh, group, and maybe a little bit about your background. Um, Tomorrow, I have worked for the University of Cincinnati for 29 years, which seems like forever, and I actually started working in a hospital as an orderly when I was 16 years old, and there learned, you know, I worked in the lab at night and worked with respiratory therapy and was very intrigued about, uh, you know, back then used to take all the devices apart and clean them and fix them and can't do that anymore. But I, so I got involved in respiratory therapy from the technical aspect and then was just like a lot of people, very fortunate that um, Jim Hurst, who's a critical care surgeon who had just come out of fellowship, came to the University of Cincinnati to develop the surgical critical care program and hired me essentially as a research assistant back in 1984. Um, And then from there, I had already been working at the hospital as a respiratory therapist. And um, from there, I've just been very lucky and had a lot of people who were very supportive from going from collecting data to writing papers and writing grants and then um, being involved in every aspect of the research that we do here in the Division of Trauma and Critical Care. And I, I remember going from, from a resident who hadn't written papers to a fellow who had learned how. Uh, that's a learned skill. I mean, is there a story behind somebody who really sort of took you in a little bit, at least in the beginning, to help you uh, sort of learn the nuts and bolts of this? Um, I, I think that you know, Jim Hurst was a, was a big help to me. He's now actually um, the acting chair at Beth Israel in Boston, but he was very helpful. Um, he, did, he had written before. And then, you know, at the time, and this is, you know, part of what we may also get into, at both respiratory care, where the editor was a gentleman named Phil Kittredge, and at critical care medicine, which was still kind of a fledgling journal at the time, when you wrote a paper, it's not like today when, you know, you, you, get, a, you get this response through the, the um, internet system that everybody uses for doing reviews and things. I mean, you could actually call the editor and he would, or he would contact you and say, you know, I really like this paper, but you, you know, you need to consider this and you need to consider that. And we used to get a lot of help from um, the, the very important people who helped start the Society of Critical Care Medicine and advice on how to do research and how to write papers. Most respiratory therapists, at least in my experience, aren't 
like you in terms of writing all these papers and things. Do you get support? Are you? I was reading on your website that you're actually in charge of the research for the residents and things. Can you expand upon that a little bit? I, you know, my my job is so I don't work in the hospital for the respiratory therapy department, um, and I know there are other places that people do. And so I I have a master's degree, and that's from George Washington um, in D.C. That is um, based on clinical research administration. So. Um, I understand the regulatory affairs and budgeting and the human subjects protections. And then, you know, I always tell people the the real reason I'm here is because I understand mechanical ventilation because I'm a respiratory therapist. But um, I've had a lot of opportunities to work with the residents on, you know, whether it's basic science doing things with rats or, you know, clinical research with patients are at the bench and at the bedside. And it is, it's, it's tricky for a respiratory therapist because, most I, I would bet that at your hospital you don't realize it, but I bet you got respiratory therapists in your administration. I mean, here at my own hospital, you know, we go, where does the respiratory therapist go? Well, a lot of them, you know, move up to make more money, will leave and go to a company where there's an opportunity, but a lot of them stay in the hospital and work as administrators for the hospital, for individual departments, for all of cardiopulmonary care. Um, but I've just, I, I have to tell you, I am so lucky because I don't want to be in charge of lots of people, and I enjoy the teaching and the seeing the patients on a regular basis. So do you, and again, just to expand upon that more to make sure I understand it, so are, are you, for the Department of Surgery, is it that there's a surgical ICU and that any clinical research that goes on there that involves respiratory, you work with the PIs or you are a PI, or how does that work? There, Any, any work that gets done in the division in trauma critical care um, it's my responsibility to make sure that it goes through the regulatory affairs person that works with me um, and that we have all the appropriate approvals, um, IRB and then contracts and, you know, all the, the important issues related to conflict of interest and those kinds of things. So whether it's trauma and we're looking at our rate of massive transfusion and the change to um, one-to-one crystalloid to, red, to packed red cells um, or we're doing mechanical ventilation and ARDS or... Um, our current work is with the military on trying to do closed-loop ventilation and oxygenation to improve the care of the soldier in the far-forward environment where there isn't really a critical care specialist, where the machines are smarter. And there are times that I'm the PI. There are times that I'm the co-PI. Um, I'm a sub-investigator or I'm just kind of the administrator overseeing to make sure that all the data is collected properly um, and that we have the research infrastructure to make sure the project is done in a timely and appropriate fashion. I thought we could use that to segue into the the main focus of the podcast, which is to talk a little bit about some of these these either advanced modes or closed-loop modes of, of ventilation. I'd just like to introduce it for a second. The way I understood it to try and explain it to the residents is this concept of interfacing between the patient and the ventilator a computer or a computer program to try and optimize... Uh, either the size of the breath or the amount uh, of the the way the breath is delivered. And and, uh, I listed here on our talking points some of these modes like APRV, proportional assist, NAVA, um, and these other dual modes. And and it can be quite confusing because, as you were saying, um, each company may name very similar modes somewhat differently. And I was wondering uh, if you wanted to take a few moments and and sort of discuss this broad area, and and again, I came into this from somebody who was trained at an ARDSnet center, so I was taught that the only really evidence-based approach was six cc's per kilo in assist control. Let me hand it over to you and let you talk for a few well, minutes. I, I, you know, t- 
terminology is terrible in medicine, and we can't really communicate with each other about our patients or educate the students and the residents unless we all speak the same language. And, you know, I like to use the example of um, if I want to blow my nose, I really want a tissue. I don't want a Kleenex. Uh, <laughs> and I, when I want you to give me, you know, the, something, a, one of the a paper that you've written, I really want you to copy it for me. I don't want you to Xerox it. And so many of us in, a, in our training were trained with a device. And, you, you know, PRVC is a good example. Everybody's on pressure-regulated volume control. Well, what does that mean? Well, what, you know, what in reality that means is that all the breaths are pressure-limited and time-cycled, and, but the pressure level can increase or decrease on, on the next breath based on the difference between your desired tidal volume and the actual volume that leaves the ventilator. Um, so, you know, we can make, we can say things like what turns the breath on, what triggers it, what is the limit variable, what's controlled during the breath, and what turns the breath off. And these ways are unfortunately more complicated. You know, it's easier to say assist control or PRVC than for me to say, well, all the breaths are pressure control breaths that are either patient or ventilator triggered, pressure limited and time cycled, but the pressure is variable to maintain a target tidal volume. And we all want to communicate quickly right. and with jargon. And it's unfortunately what it often does is make the, you know, and, and if, I, if you don't mind, I'll give one example. I have the same problem. Everybody wants to use this dual mode. But the ventilator, no matter how much it costs at $36,000, can't tell the difference between when the compliance is getting better and when the patient effort is increasing. So as the patient breathes harder, the ventilator goes, oh, it's easier to deliver, to deliver that volume. The patient's getting better. I'll use less pressure. And then the ventilator then turns over the work of breathing to the patient when in fact that may not be the physician's desire or what's best for the patient. So it really is, as much as it's a pain, it's imperative that we understand the language. Well, and then let me, let me allow you to take a step back and say, can you maybe bring us up to speed on the history of how these advanced modes sort of came into being? Maybe that, that would help. Well, I, I mean, my favorite story is SIMV. You know, there was always IMV, and SIMV is synchronized IMV with the explanation that um, you didn't want the, patient, the ventilator to deliver the breath at the same time the patient had just taken a breath or was the middle of, in the middle of exhalation. And I think that made sense. The sum total work comparing SIMV to IMV was published in Respiratory Care, interestingly by Barry Shapiro, who most people probably know just passed away. And he and some of his anesthesiology colleagues got in a room and breathed on an MA1 that had been developed with what was called the IDV controller to do SIMV, and they all agreed that breathing on a mouthpiece through the circuit, that SIMV was more comfortable than IMV. So that's, <laughs> so, so we have SIMV. And many other modes are, you know, I think PRVC is a good example, was developed because experts in mechanical ventilation like Neil McIntyre um, would say, you know, I really like pressure control but it worries me that I can't guarantee a minimum volume. I mean, I want to be able to make sure my patient doesn't get hypoventilated. So the manufacturers go back and, and develop a technique to answer some questions. Sometimes these modes are developed by manufacturers looking for a niche market or the hook that gets you to look at their device. Sometimes they're developed by um, scientists who kind of fall into things. Automatic tube compensation, which is used by a lot of ventilators now to automatically eliminate the work of breathing due to the endotracheal tube. 
was actually developed by a, a, a very bright German scientist who was he was studying the frequency dependence of compliance in animals in his lab, and the endotracheal tube kept screwing up his measurements. So he developed this technique to eliminate the ET tube from the work. And you know, one of his clinical colleagues came in and said, "Wow, <laughs> you know, we could do that for patients." So it, it's a lot like the penicillin growing in the sink in the petri dishes. Sometimes you find something that that may be useful, not on purpose, but kind of serendipitously. Now, how do you? And again, <laughs> I'm having trouble again because this is such a tricky area. I was just taking my piece of paper and writing down the various modes. You mentioned automatic tube compensation. We've talked about PRVC. Before I, I talk about some of the other modes that I would love to with you, like proportional assist and, and NAVA, how, how do you, if you're working, I, I know you've been at the same place for a while, but how, how would you, if you went to a new unit, in terms of helping to pick one mode or another? Because it seems like, in my experience working in a couple different ICUs, it really is, you know, this particular attending happens to like APRV. But when you go to the conferences on it, you'll hear, you know, Dr. Marini do a pro-con debate on it, and somebody will say, well, here's the theory about why it should work, and then somebody else will say, well, here's why I don't think, well, here's why I think it's dangerous. Right. What, what would you want to share with the members of SCCM on this big picture? Well, I think this is really where where SCCM is, in fact, the, the model for making this happen correctly, which is you need to have a multidisciplinary group sit down and say, okay, this isn't about what I like or what you like. This is about the evidence. So we're going to start, you know, it doesn't matter, really matter where you're at. We're going to start everybody on volume control, you know, I, what you would say assist control, I would say CMV, continuous mandatory ventilation. And at a tidal volume of, you know, 6 to 8 mLs per kilo as long as the plateau pressure is less than 25 or 30, whatever you want to pick. I think you need to start with with traditional starting variables and then let people, you know, use their influence to and their expertise. I mean, to me, um, everybody worries about protocols because, oh, it takes away the physician's ability to practice. Now, what protocols do is allow the staff to care for the average run-of-the-mill patient who doesn't need a lot of attention so that the expertise of the critical care people can be spent looking at the guy who doesn't tolerate that. His work of breathing is too high. He has too much air trapping, so you know, or he has a high um, intra-abdominal pressure. So you know, we want to put an esophageal balloon in, or um, we want to use a different technique for ventilating that patient to maintain a constant tidal volume at the lowest possible airway pressure. So I, I think it's really important um, for people to put away their egos, and um, I, you know, I see these people all the time. To me, somebody who says everybody has to go on APRV everybody has to go on PRVC or everybody has to go on NAVA is somebody who doesn't understand all the rest of the modes and is making up for it by by simplifying it for themselves. And um, then do you worry, though, conversely, Just I'm just thinking as you're talking, but but if you do some of these fancy modes intermittently, maybe you won't gain the, the expertise at the local level? Because I remember that, that has sometimes come up. Well, I, I think, you know, a lot of these techniques we're talking about, the good thing is they can be done with your traditional ventilator. Okay. I mean, I... I worry about the people who just want to bring a high-frequency ventilator out once every four months. I, I think that's, that's a potentially dangerous practice because you don't have enough expertise amongst your staff to use it safe, safely and effectively. But um, I think what it ends up doing is, you know, let's say, and, and you're right, I mean, we're, in your training, the standard for ARDS, just based on the literature, has to be ARDSnet. There's no other 
large trial that shows an improvement in outcomes. Now, you know, we just, the most recent work from Danny Talmore um, about using esophageal balloons in some patients, I, I think is very interesting, but it's, it's picking that, those niche patients who have altered chest wall compliance who might need PEEPs greater than what is usually prescribed by the ARGENET PEEP FIO2 table. So I still think that there's a, I don't think you should use everything in, across the board, but you ought to evaluate things in your unit and see how they work and see how they apply to your patients. And if you're comfortable doing one technique over another, um, I don't have fine as long as there are, are protocols and education for your staff to make sure everybody's on the same page. And then I actually, I, I thought the way we would go with the interview at this point is let me ask you about two particular modes, your thoughts, and then we'll try and finish up by letting you talk about some of these other exciting areas of interest of yours, such as uh, MASH casualties and surge capacity, and let you share those opinions with SCCM members. Okay. Um, so the first question is when I was like preparing this talk on, on your area of expertise a couple of years ago, I was wondering why a mode like proportional assist didn't take off more. And if you could talk about that, that would be great. From what I understood, it was that it helps you. If you need more help, it gives it. Maybe if you could talk about that. All right. So proportional assist is based on the equation of motion, motion of the respiratory system which says that the pressure that it takes to ventilate a patient, whether it's the pressure from the ventilator or your own muscle pressure or the two together um, to ventilate the patient is equivalent to the volume times the elastance plus the resistance times the flow. So what it does is you're exactly right. So the, this, the um, description we had earlier, in PRVC, the harder the patient works, the less the ventilator does, which may or may not be appropriate depending on your clinical scenario. But with PAV, the more work the patient does, the more work the ventilator does, hence the proportional term. Um, so the idea is to always be doing a certain percentage of the work of breathing for the patient. And PAV has a great physiologic basis, um, obviously based on, the, on an equation that's used to describe even how we breathe spontaneously. I think the, the most recent advance with PAV and the key to PAV is being able to routinely measure elastance and resistance accurately and reproducibly. Unfortunately, the, the Europeans have had PAV for seven years, and if you read the literature out of, out of Europe, it says, great idea, but in the studies that are done, um, for the most part, there doesn't seem to be a big difference between PAV and pressure support in terms of final outcomes for the patient. Maybe fewer missed triggers, better synchrony, things like that, but no definitive changes in um, the outcome for those patients. But uh, I think like a lot of things that we do, so as we start to use PAV, what that does is help us understand better how to use pressure support the right way. So, you know, in, in, the, in the end, it's a win-win because whether PAV is better than pressure support or not, it helps us really understand the whole patient-ventilator interaction um, com complexity much better. And then the, the, the last mode that I thought I'd let you talk about, which again seemed very fascinating and uh, seemed like if if uh, finances weren't an issue, it would be the mode I would want to be on is this NAVA. And if you could uh, take a few moments to talk about it, that'd be great. Um, so NAVA, again, similar story. Um, Christer Cinderby is a physiologist working in the lab measuring diaphragmatic contraction and, di and um, diaphragm function in patients with um, neuromuscular disease. And one of the fellows um, from Italy who's studying sees this and says, wow, that'd be a great way to trigger the ventilator, and that's kind of the start of NAVA. So what NAVA does is you place an esophageal catheter. It can be as part of an NG tube, 
Um, the original catheters were about seven French, so about the size of your average Swan-Gans catheter. And it has an array of electrodes, and you get a diaphragmatic um, contraction signal. So the beauty of NAVA, the thing that is great about it is um, the muscle measurement is determining how the ventilator delivers the breath and ends the breath. So the trigger and the cycle is based on muscle pressure. So it doesn't need, it, it still measures it, but it doesn't need airway pressure, volume, and flow. So, um, so what are the good things? The good things are um, you can do it in the face of a leak, because okay, the muscles aren't affected by the leak. You could use it in the face of significant air trapping and auto-peep because you know, in air, whether you use flow triggering or pressure triggering, the patient still has to overcome the auto-peep to, to change the flow at the airway to trigger the ventilator. The muscle pressure is going to, or the muscle EMG is going to be signaling as it's trying to overcome that auto-peep. Um, and I think in neonates where the breathing is so fast, the high respiratory rates, those are the three places to me that NAVA um, may make some inroads. So, so it would, it, in the theory is that would it would optimize ventilator synchrony, right? Correct. Because there wouldn't be these ones where the patient is attempting to trigger the ventilator, but it doesn't fire. Is that right. trying to make that? Right. You would have fewer missed triggers, and you would have better synchrony of the patient's own neural inspiratory time with the ventilator inspiratory time. But, so then taking that to the next step, what is your opinion about where it is and where it's going and, and, and the trajectory of it? Yeah, well, there's still no, there's still no large patient studies. Um, most things are done in, in normals so far that have been published. Um, there is, I think there is a move to do some more in, in neonatal ICU. Um, the problems are, and, and I honestly don't know, uh, there's an added cost. There's a cost of the catheter. Um, and then, as a consequence, there'd have to be somebody's time to place the catheter, and there's added cost to the machine to have NAVA. And Are I there think, any ventilators that do it now? Um, yes, the oh. Servo I from McKay does it, mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's FDA approved. Um, but my concern is that, so the best time to use NAVA, I would tell you, is in the face of a leak. Well, those two places are neonates with uncuffed tubes and in non-invasive ventilation. But you know if you're doing non-invasive ventilation, the key to non-invasive ventilation is the therapist, the nurse, the doc sit down with the patient and go, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put this mask on your face, and we're going to let you get used to it, and then we're going to use the pressure to help relieve your work of breathing. Getting the patient's trust, spending time with the patient's Nick Hill's group showed that initial two hours is critical to the success of NIV. And so you put the mask on the face, sometimes let the patient hold it themselves, put the pressure very low so they can barely notice it, then slowly increase it. If you want to start NIV by telling the patient you're going to put an NG tube in them, <laughs> I'm, I honestly, I just that's just my opinion. I'm not sure that that's the answer. Now, I actually asked this question at the Respiratory Care Symposium of some people. I said, well, would you put an NG tube down every non-invasive patient if it improved synchrony? And only about a third of people said they would. And I said, well, what if it improved outcome? Well, now two-thirds of people are willing to do it. So I think it, it, it's like everything we do, it will have to be a cost-benefit analysis, and that's do we, in non-invasive ventilation, do we try NAVA if it simply improves synchrony, but what if the placement of the catheter, I mean, we've, if you've ever put a nasal catheter or nasal trumpet or anything in your nose as a student or in doing any kind of research, it's not comfortable. There's, you know, it's, it's not it's not getting a femoral line or anything, but it's not right. comfortable. Right. And I think that's a 
big step that that technique has to overcome. Now, in neonates who are already sedated where you're having triggering issues, in adult patients with asthma or bad COPD where you have 15 auto-peep and this will allow the patient to trigger effectively, there, you know, I see no problem. It ought to be implemented. But the other issue is, is the whole triggering issue, and I always tell people this, there are at least three case reports in the literature now where patients who are brain dead have been left on the ventilator because their heartbeat is triggering the ventilator and the nurses have misinterpreted this patient effort. So I'm not so sure that having a better trigger is is necessarily the be-all and end-all for most patients. I think this, like everything else, is a niche. Um, no, I was just curious because it, it, it sounded like if you were going to invent the proper way to trigger the ventilator, that seems like it would be a good way because that's the best way to measure that the patient is actually trying to take a breath, I guess, right? Yeah, sure. Or, you know, or you'd tap into the brain. Right. You know, it'd be great if we could, you know, put a, like on Star Trek with the Borg and right. put the little clip on the side and we could have the patient's brain talk to the ventilator's computer and then we'd have perfect synchrony. Um, but yeah, it's I, it's a very new idea. All my... All my ideas that it's good or that it that I have objections to it are basically theoretical. They need more evidence. I thought I'd let you conclude just because I thought it was really interesting to read about it is one of your other areas of interest is um, how do you uh, assign or coordinate uh, ventilator needs in mass casualty, situa- mass casualty situations? And I, I even saw you were, one of your articles was having multiple people hooked up to one vent. So if you could talk about that for a few minutes, that'd be great. Yeah, I think that um, you know the, the avian flu scare and the homeland defense ramp up ever since 9-11 really has a lot of people saying, you know, what's going to happen if we really do have thousands of people who need critical care. And I think maybe that's the best thing I can say is that you shouldn't think of it specifically as ventilators. You should think of it as critical care because, you know, if you had, if, if you had Bill Gates's money and you could buy 10,000 ventilators for your hospital, it wouldn't matter if you didn't have 10,000 beds to put the patient in and 5,000 nurses to watch them, you know, and 3,000 respiratory therapists to make sure the ventilators are working right. So all these things are limited, are really critical care. But I think that um, mechanical ventilation in a mass casualty situation requires a ventilator capable of ventilating a patient with ARDS, and you should choose the ventilator that you would buy and stockpile based on that eventuality. And I think, you know, unfortunately, like everything, I mean, people people are told, you know, we're in we're we're in Miami, Florida, where we just had the Orange Bowl, and you know, there were 100,000 people there. And what if there's a bomb goes off and we have tens of thousands of casualties? Well, you know, how sick are the patients going to be? Why are they going to need to be on the ventilator? And that determines for you what performance characteristics the ventilator has to have. And unfortunately, a lot of people look at the cost and go, oh, well, we'll just buy these real cheap disposable automatic resuscitators, which will fail miserably in the face of a patient with ARDS. Um, you, you mentioned the, there's a group that has done a couple papers now on, they t- basically take a Puritan Bennett 840 and hook four ventilator circuits to it and then attach it to four separate patients. And I think that's a colossally bad idea <laughs> okay. because, you know, unless you get four people who are all the same height and the same lung volume and the same lung compliance and the same airway resistance, the person with the best lungs is going to get the most tidal volume and the person with the worst lungs is going to get the least tidal volume. Um, the person breathing the fastest is going to determine the rate for everybody. So, I mean, I, I think, I'll, you know, people get these, you know, whiz-bang ideas. Um, oh, there's a lot of patients, so let's just 
have four patients on one ventilator. And then, I mean, think about your own for yourself. Think about the average ventilator circuit is somewhere between four and five feet long. So you're going to have the one ventilator, and you're going to position those four patients around it somehow and manage to care for them. No, it did make any sense to me. That's why I wanted to ask yeah, you about yeah, that. <laughs> I, Lewis Rubinson and I have written to the authors on both publications and said, you know, boy, you're really overlook, <laughs> overlooking the obvious. And in their, their last study that was in sheep with normal lungs, um, they end up having to measure blood gases every half hour. Otherwise, some of their sheep are hypercarbic or hypoxemic mm. just based on changes in compliance, based on which position they're laying in. And those are normal sheep. Right. And, yeah. and there's, the real key outside of that is there's no way to individually monitor the tidal volume going to each individual animal. Yeah. So it, I, and then again, so, I mean, I guess some people will say, well, it's better than nothing. Well, then that should be your marketing slogan. You know, but I, and, better than nothing. And I, I was also a little bit confused about some of your work in this. Is the concept that there are like citywide central or in theory there should be central wide city repositories for ventilators in case of an emergency? Or can you talk about that? Um, I think most states have stockpiles and many counties have stockpiles of ventilators. And there are two issues that become apparent. One is do you take all – so let's – for instance, the state of Ohio bought over 500 ventilators, and they stockpiled them in different places around the state, so up near Cleveland, over by Toledo, Columbus, Cincinnati. And so you have them in, in this area where they're supposedly being taken care of, although somebody found out that some of them hadn't had the battery charged, battery charged in over a year. So when they took them out of the stockpile, not only couldn't they charge the battery, they couldn't even get it to turn on because the battery had been dead for so long. So the stockpile issue is if you stockpile it, it's great because it's always there and you're ready to distribute it to wherever it needs to go. But who's going to take care of it and do the maintenance? Right. And what about the education? What if you send a ventilator that you stockpiled to a hospital that's never used that ventilator right. before? So then you have people who say, well, let's, you know, like a city like Cincinnati, let's take the 200 ventilators we just bought and give... 10 to the University Hospital, 10 to the Christ Hospital, 10 to Jewish Hospital, 10 to Bethesda, and distribute them around and say, these are now your ventilators. You're responsible for their care and maintenance. And the therapist will use them every day. So therefore, now you've handled the education piece, you've handled the maintenance piece, but now they have wear and tear. So what are you going to do when they have to be replaced? Right. And so a lot of places have actually, you know, no surprise, split it right down the middle and um, keep some of them in a warehouse where they can be easily placed on a single pallet and shipped to a site of an emergency. And then they take the other half and distribute them around to the larger hospitals to use um, so that the therapists and the people taking care of patients are routinely um, using them and, and understand the nuances of those devices. Richard, this has been terrific, and I want to just tell people that if you want to hear more, you can hear Mr. Branson speak at the upcoming Critical Care Congress in Nashville, Tennessee. We've been speaking today with Richard D. Branson, RRT-FCCM. He's an associate professor of surgery in the Division of Trauma and Critical Care at the University of Cincinnati, and he's been speaking with us today about two of his areas of expertise and interest, which are advanced modes of mechanical ventilation as well as uh, mechanical ventilation in mass casualty. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Thank sir. Thank you, Rich. This concludes our podcast for Friday, January 9th, 2009. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community.
For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Infectious diseases are the second leading cause of death worldwide. Many new and re-emerging microbial threats, such as Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS, SARS, avian influenza virus, and West Nile fever, continually challenge intensive care providers. Attend the 8th Summer Conference in Intensive Care Medicine to learn about ICU infection in an era of multi-resistance in Chicago, Illinois, USA, from June 4th to 6th, 2009, to become knowledgeable on the most effective infection control strategies available. Learn more by visiting www.sccm.org.